You're listening to the podcast for Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Buy tickets to upcoming live events in San Francisco at inforumsf.org. Want even more Inforum? Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram as InforumSF. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Inforum with the Commonwealth Club. My name is Mina Kim, and I'm the evening news anchor for KQED and the Friday host of Forum. And how excited are we to get to talk with Lauren Duca? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Lauren made headlines three years ago when she wrote an article after the election of Donald Trump called Donald Trump is Gaslighting America. She drew even more fans after that when she was on Tucker Carlson and she was able to give a very smart and stinging retort to his claim that she should stick to writing about thigh-high boots, because at that time she had been with Teen Vogue writing a lot about celebrity, culture, fashion, things like that, and that that somehow disqualified her from writing political analysis. But of course she didn't listen, and she has written a book called How to Start a Revolution, Young People and the Future of American politics. And so congratulations <laughs> on that, Lauren Tuca. And it this book is really a lot about your own political awakening. And I found that very interesting because you it's not like you had not been thinking about politics or that you hadn't even been writing about how so much of women's and girls and teens lives was political. So what exactly did the election of Donald Trump do? For you, what did it reveal to you about politics? Yeah, so it's really hard for me to describe how I was operating before. Uh, it's just because political alienation is a, a lack of something. And so, uh, so much of my research was in looking at how I had been so shut down on understanding a sense of agency. When I was when I was writing before, I was interested in politics in the sense of feminism, of course, being a necessary investigation of cultural hierarchies. And that was always my goal in my work. But I just was disconnected from the systems of power that explicitly present themselves. And especially democracy, it seemed as if it was this abstract historical achievement. Um, and I just, I just assumed that it was working all the time and would magically continue working um, and that things were going to get better and better until we eventually kind of hit this big equality rainbow, I guess. And it was like, you know, yeah, Obama's president, so that's better. The gays are getting married, so that's better. Like, just this sort of neoliberal fantasy um, was something I bought into in, in addition to the idea that all things political could and in fact should be swept out of view in, in, in regular conversations with the people around you. I was taught that politics was rude and that t- t- talking about my, my annoying views about equality, um, my social justice warrior kind of state of being that did pre-exist this awakening, that that, was, that might upset someone who you know, didn't agree with equality and they, they might feel uncomfortable if I was talking about <laughs> wanting equality around them. And so sort of what clicked was, oh, I cannot be abiding by any of the rules that are currently in place. They're, they all are uh, continuing to enforce the system and it's, it's all made up. And the thing about Trump's election that made me realize that is that it was impossible. 
It was absolutely fucking impossible that this was going to happen until it happened. And I was able to see that our political and media gatekeepers had absolutely no idea what they are talking about. And, you know, the, they seemed as if they had this endless expertise and it was just, well, they know better. And so I guess this is the way things are. And we got to wait on the, the gun reform thing and the climate crisis. Well, it's just, whoa, Washington is rough. So that's the situation. And, and, and I refuse to accept that um, as my reality. And, and so that, I think that's the, the essential part of the shift. Well, part of what contributed to that sense of reality initially, that this was kind of politics was kind of something to the side and that eventually Eventually, it would work itself out and, and we would move toward progress was was also the way you were raised. Right. I mean, you talk about how your parents didn't like talking about politics mm -hmm. and, and they they made that kind of a rule to some extent that you just didn't engage with it in nice comfortable settings. Yes. Yeah, that it was so much of it is about politeness and civility and respectability and that's all I think that's part of the grander illusion and it looks one very specific way in suburban New Jersey, but it's also uh the sort of thing where we're supposed to ensure that Sarah Huckabee Sanders is eating tacos in peace, you know? It's like this idea of like, well, we we just all have to agree and get along and like Ellen DeGeneres can go to the baseball game with George W. Bush and we'll just like pretend that all of the war crimes are fine. And it's just absolutely absurd. Like politics doesn't take place in some vacuum sealed space that is separate from our daily lives. And and what how are we supposed to believe that we're not supposed to constantly be talking to each other about the laws and policies that shape the way we live together? And it, it should be embarrassing to not know what's going on. And yeah. So you disagreed with Ellen DeGeneres sitting with or you with George W. Bush as like an example of we don't have to we don't all have to agree with each other, but we can be friends. I mean, I just I just think it's a matter of being willing to have uncomfortable conversations and the harm that George Bush did to this country is unresolved. Um, and I think that pretending that we all just have to accept each other's differences is actually not what we need to do. We all need to be willing to do the work of navigating compromises that allow us to get to equitable public power. That's what I think our mission needs to be in having political conversations is negotiating how things can be best for the collective and insisting on observing the patterns that restrict us from having a voice as a public people and for certain identities ha being oppressed based on whatever level of marginalization they are away from the avatar of the straight white man. And I don't think we can accept um, the enforcement of the white supremacist capitalist patriarchy as something that we have to endure in polite conversation. And I think it's something that we actually should all be um, very rude about all the time. <laughs> so <laughs> give me an example, a recent example of this of you encountering uh, white supremacist capitalist patriarchy and taking it as an opportunity to really challenge it? Well, my entire life is that. I mean, my very existence in the political space routinely being challenged is totally absurd. Like, But I think part of the reason that I'm asking is because in your book, you really talk about 
the importance of being outspoken and uh-huh. how to engage. Yeah. And I'm curious, just as an example, for people who are interested, mm-hmm. right, in in trying to develop the ability, the language to be able to confront what it is they feel like they're facing, mm-hmm. like how how do you approach it? Okay, I'm going to need you to be more specific. How well, do I approach the white supremacist patriarchy? Well, how I mean, do you approach a situation a where you are disagreeing with somebody, right? You feel like yeah. they are operating to reinforce the status quo and you want to challenge them on it. You want to be rude all the time, right? Or just to quote you, like, what is a way to do that? I think and that, what is an example that, you know, maybe you could share that would illuminate that is basically what. Yeah. Um, so talking to my parents about politics has been a journey of doing this kind of work, of being willing to have uncomfortable conversations. So I think the essential thing is starting from a foundation of fact. Um, and and it, the, the idea of, I think, I think that maybe we've been... Um, led a little bit astray from what I'm trying to argue for in maybe getting caught into the Ellen DeGeneres, George W. Bush thing. So um, I think it's more about um, the idea of being rude is pushing back against the idea that we're supposed to make people comfortable by avoiding talking about politics, that that would be in some way impolite. And what I mean is that we have to be able to endure uncomfortable conversations. We have to be able to experience that discomfort because that the work of democracy includes having difficult conversations. So I don't mean that, um, I I mean to say that you need to be willing to say the things that you, you know with moral certainty are true. And even when you know that you will experience pushback and that knowing that standing up and raising your voice requires a huge amount of emotional energy and think the way to approach it is to say, how can we begin this conversation as journalists? How can we make sure that we are having a foundation of fact that allows us to discuss the policies, the opinions that we believe, and to not feel that there's a way that someone can be wrong, to have a level of forgiveness for the level to which we've all been programmed with the patterns of the white supremacist patriarchy, and to be willing to unlearn them together. Um, and I think that my my parents were very much in a state of total media illiteracy. Um, they're sort of like soft fo- Fox News watchers. You know, like they, they would say the word Benghazi in a weird tone. Like they weren't, they weren't completely hook up, hooked up to it. Um, but there was a lot of free floating ideas about like Hillary Clinton killing someone in the woods, maybe, you know, just like loose <laughs> fan fiction like that. And <laughs> some little fun ideas um, from the far right media economy. And uh, we had to say, they told me I couldn't talk about politics. I had to say, how can we, how can you talk to me about politics this, as I am writing like a journalist? Because I'm not trying to lie to you. I mean, not as your daughter either, y'all, but like as a journalist, my goal is to have ultimate allegiance to the truth and empower people with information by telling the truth. So how can we start from understanding where the truth is? 
at a basic level, let's take in what does it mean for something to be a newswire? What are the legacy publications we can consider? How can we create a media diet here where we're working off the same basis of information and at least have a sense of security in what is true? Because I think that so much of um, the toxicity that arises when we try to have conversations with people we disagree with is based on fear. And it's based on this like insistence on being right, on getting the last word, on winning for your team. And we need to have more conversations that are motivated by the goal, very clearly, of building the power uh, as a collective that we have been so denied. And so my, um, I, I guess I'm seen often as someone who's divisive and on the left, but I just, to the left of what? To the left of oligarchy? Like, I just think that my best interest is for the public at large. And I believe that I am fighting for um, even a person in a MAGA hat. And I think that it's my job to also try and reach them to the uh, degree that I'm able to make information accessible and further reveal what I think is um, the matrices that enforce the white supremacist patriarchy and to continue to um, zero in on them and unpack them in terms that people can clearly see and understand because we are all going through these motions be it through these bizarre secret rules that make it so that the type of person who looks like Wolf Blitzer is automatically taken seriously and forgiven for all sorts of wrongdoing, including but not limited to sticking their dick in someone's face. And I just don't think it's the way things are going to be anymore. Um, and I don't I think that the, there's a compassionate, intelligent um, way to do the work of all of us unlearning this script together. One of the things that I, I thought also really seemed to resonate when you were having that conversation with your parents was that by telling you that you couldn't talk about politics, they were also saying, they were basically asking you to deny something that was just essential to who you are. Um, the other thing that, I wanted to ask you about is based on what you just said, like who gets to be the person who is respected for their views or automatically is viewed as an expert or somebody to take seriously is someone who looks like Wolf Blitzer. What are the ways that you feel like young people, young women are, are looked down on in those conversations? What are the ways that, what are the messages that they get about their participation? Well, so, you know, it's it's really wild because if you think about the story that's told to us about young people, it's that we're totally apathetic and we're taking selfies and we're frivolous and narcissistic and, oh, look at this shameful low youth voter turnout. Like, they just don't care. Uh, I'm pretty sure that the kind of stuff that young people like is so endlessly obvious. You could look at a cute subway ad and be able to Photoshop one of those things yourself. Like the stock crap that's next to the register at Urban Outfitters, is, it doesn't take a marketing genius to figure out what that looks like. Where, what does the average political campaign look like though? And why is all that crap missing? Why aren't that? Where are the bold sans serif fonts? Like, yeah. where are the where's the cute merch? <laughs> and I'm, I mean, that's a superficial, sal shallow level of aesthetics, but it's it's revelatory of the total strategy behind the average incumbent's use of their time in office and what's missing, which is that it is. The, 
democratic duty of our elected officials to represent all of their constituents. And that includes reaching out to them actively for engagement, um, hold, wanting to be held accountable, and understanding them as the first and foremost important customers that they must satisfy with the product of the policies that they create. And instead they sit back and we're told that you know, less than 10% voter turnout on, on most congressional races is just a shame and all oh, the American people are so tapped out. Well, where the fuck are you? What are you doing about it? And I think that the way it looks for young people is compounded by the fact that we're told at grand scale, young people are apathetic and tapped out. And then it's further compounded by gender with young women when the things that we like, the things that we're interested in, the things that we've naturally been socialized to mess with are treated as if they are reasons that our opinions are automatically less serious. And the, the example comes, and you even said this in the intro, with Tucker Carlson. He told me, stick to the thigh-high boots meeting, stick to the fashion, stick to the entertainment. And it was really shocking. But I'm grateful for that because it put it into such an obvious bullseye. You know, before is like just an odorless gas where mm -hmm. it just, it sort of seems like those things never went with politics before. <laughs> and I really feel like he screwed up and it became so easy to see. And it became something I could so clearly point to and say, hold on, what are the other bizarre secret rules? And also, how, what is this pageantry of the straight white man? Why is it that all of these aesthetics of the white supremacist capitalist patriarchy are necessarily giving permission for authority? And the best way to look at it, and this is my favorite line ever, is who decided that golf is so serious? <laughs> I think all, all the things that you're getting at is, is kind of turning the responsibility around. I mean, Yes, there's a lot of talk about young people need to get engaged, they need to get involved, they need to vote if they want to be taken seriously by politicians. But basically what you're saying is it is the politician's responsibility to draw in young voters. So what more could they be doing? I mean, you talked about clearly the merch, the slogans, the things that draw their attention. But what is it that you feel like politicians need to do dramatically different to take up the responsibility of bringing young people on to their side, help them understand um, democracy. And do you think there is any current Democratic presidential candidate who is doing that? Yeah, that's a really good. OK, it's about talking the way people talk. And that's true for politicians and it's true for journalists. It's the, the language of politics is shrouded in all of this mystery and expertise and all this insider baseball language. Bargain. If it's not just boring, right? And I think that, so what it looks like is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And not just in, not in terms of her policies, in terms of her messaging and the means by which she's executing it. She's going on Instagram stories and saying, here's the way I clean my face at night for good skin. And also here's my policy breakdown. And the idea is enjoying your life while you're consuming politics. Um, is previously something we just haven't really seen a lot of. Like, if you look at the way the average political campaign is set up, it has the appeal of a dentist's office. There's just, there's, it's all being kept away from us. And it has to do with this separation of that which is entertaining and that which is political, which is absurd. We have to be able to, you know, it, um, the idea that, that, 
that, that young women's interests are separate has to do with all of the stuff that we like and enjoy that is kept from the political conversation. Because if it's joyless, then it's harder to access it. It's harder to tap your passion into it. And it's harder to feel a sense of purpose and community through it. And so I think what we need is to just completely change the shape of the way things are done in politics and start messing with um, the, the, the things we love and the things that bring us excitement and to use them to better make the policy issues we care about digestible, to better communicate with each other and empower each other with information in a way that is seamlessly interlaced with the things that we're doing for fun. And I think that it's, um, it's, it's very, really very quite simple because if what is democracy? Democracy is interrogating the question of how we ought to live together and we have to be able to enjoy our lives while we're doing that. And speaking of questions, I should remind the audience that um, we'll be integrating your written questions during this conversation. So please use the question cards if you would also like to be one of the people asking the questions of Lauren Duca as well. So I get all that. And I think that that is great. There is a price that, that you've paid that gets paid when you stand up and put yourself out there mm -hmm. to be taken seriously and you're not of the mold that you say we have definitely been, thank you, that we have definitely been conditioned to see mm -hmm. as the people who have authority and a voice. And so how, I mean, you've written about how after Tucker Carlson, it got really bad. And there was a part of you that was asking yourself, like, how, why am I enduring this? Can I endure this? And I was wondering how you got through that and how you handle that now. Because while you have legions of fans, you also are very open about the fact that you have legions of haters yeah. as well. And I mean, you even had like Martin Shkreli, who I think he was, didn't he have to like get, he was like banned from Twitter or something for the way he harassed you as well on social media. That's right. Um, so talk about that experience and how you navigate it now, what you've learned from all of that. Well, you know, um, the Martin, the Martin Scully stuff was extraordinarily ugly, um, because it showed me that speaking up even the littlest bit about the harassment actually results in way more harassment. Um, I guess though it's changed me in ways that I didn't conceive were possible. Uh, when it, First, when I first got the the barrage of death and rape threats after Tucker, I was just taken out. Like my immune system just completely quit, and I was in bed for five days, and it just just from stress. Um, I've been on a journey since then to that has required me to routinely and dynamically be interrogating the way that I am stomaching feedback and. Mm -hmm. When it, even when I um, came back from that huge crash, I didn't understand that it's essential to have a constantly self-validated sense of self. And I had to really be pushed there um, by really unspeakable, hateful, um, content that is sort of beyond what I could imagine a human person sitting down and creating. Um, and it forced me to such awful dark places 
that I had to find a willpower and I had to find a sense of purpose and I had to decide how I see myself because the ugly, grotesque version of what I was seeing was too much to bear. And um, yeah, that's a really dramatic way of saying like, thank you to my haters. They brought me to where I am today, but like truly. And it's at the level of like, now I understand all feedback, good and bad as information that I have to make the decision whether or not to accept. And that makes me mm. extremely fucking powerful. That makes it so that I get to decide who I am. And to be able to see myself as a symbol, which I come sometimes like I'll imagine myself on Twitter as like a, the Macy's parade float version of me. And that helps because a lot of times I'm aware that I'm taking hits as a symbol, that a lot, of it, a lot of it really is as simple as it being infuriating that a young woman thinks she has a right to say anything at all. Um, and it's been, it, it makes me extremely angry. And when that happens, I have to look at my anger and accept that it's anger that I would rather not be feeling and then decide to use that energy to continue speaking up. You got some scathing criticism. There was a BuzzFeed article a couple of weeks ago, right around the time that you released your book. Mm -hmm. um, and there were a lot of headlines about the NYU class that you taught, mm -hmm. uh, filing a formal complaint with the university. That's slightly different than, say, the kind of death and rape threats that you got. Yeah. Which is, it's so horrific that that's always paired with women who speak up. But anyway, um, how... Did that affect you differently? Yeah. To get it from people that you felt like were working or at least shared the same goals as you did in terms of trying to. So this one has been a journey for me. Wow. And I'm still on it. Um, you know, I, I was trying for a long time to process it in terms of a shared goal of equality. Because surely uh, this writer, I, I think, probably shares about 99% of my politics or uh, that's what I would think. And then it occurred to me that Mm, girls were mean to me in high school who also voted for Obama and <laughs> that maybe some other stuff is going on. And what it looks like is really um, complicated when it's a woman of color uh, laundering maliciousness through the journalistic vessel of BuzzFeed. Um, I am, I am, I want to be precise in saying that that piece was absolutely anti-journalistic. It erased the significance of my work, the reality of my sexuality, and used an incident in, in something I did as a side hustle with a, a couple of students not connecting with my teaching style and framed it as if it was some horrific crime that totally invalidated my past three years working as a journalist in this political climate. I mean, yeah, it was pretty fucked up. And I <laughs> think that um, people can be cowards because I had a lot of people come into my defense privately who have pretty big platforms. And um, I think that the reality of what this piece was will reveal itself to be an insignificant and hateful footnote in the long run of what I plan to continue working for. And um, I'm not worried about that. But what I am worried about is 
a level of cowardice that makes it so that when the optics are more complicated, because the optics are more complicated than far-right hatred when they are infighting um, that is bred on toxicity and is unproductive and unnecessary like this, there's less of a willingness to speak up. And I think that we all need to use our guts more when we're contributing our voices to the conversation and um, think twice before participating in pylons or consensus um, and not just being willing to say things when it's safe to say them because everyone else in the group is saying those things. It sounds like it's it's harder when the criticism comes from, as you said, somebody who shares 99% probably of your politics, just sure. in terms of the processes that I'm um, to be clear, through. I don't think of that article even as criticism. I mean, it was an unabashed hit job. I guess I want to be well, clear about speaking, being though, able to take criticism is another yeah. important po point I want to make, which is I think I have done things that I need to evolve from that are mistakes. I don't think I'm above making mistakes. That article was a trash anti-journalistic hit job. What do you think is like the most valid, valid criticism you've ever received? I think the most valid criticism I've ever received, I mean... I'm not sure off the top of my head. Um, <laughs> it's more just tweaks and notes on messaging, or maybe there's been times that I've um, been a little trigger happy with weighing in on an issue, um, and that's just a that's just mm. uh, I think a a thing that I've had to learn over time. But I'm, I guess what I'm saying is I'm. I want to be able to receive criticism and I'm open to criticism, especially from people who have different experiences than I do and who want to share their knowledge with me. Because the thing is, we all need to be actively evolving all the time. And I don't think I'm beyond reproach. I think that I'm making mistakes actually pretty regularly in public. Like I'm, I'm never doing anything perfectly. And I actually don't know anybody who's ever doing everything perfectly, except maybe Brene Brown. And <laughs> Bless her so much, truly. She brings me such strength, Renee Brown. But I, I mean, I'm really fucking up all the time. But then I am, I'm trying to be aware of it and clear about it and to make gains tomorrow. Um, you know, I think, I think that we want to hang people on their mistakes and we could better contribute to the conversation if instead we were focused on, focusing on building each other up and adding positivity. Um, you know, it's like, I feel like any time that anybody has a desire to, to, to tear someone down, I mean, unless it's, unless it's Mitch McConnell, then, then go somewhere else with that energy and use it, I think, to praise the people you think are doing things right. Because I think we're, we're kneecapping total productivity in hanging people on their flaws. And because the, the, it is so vulnerable to, to raise your voice and it's so vulnerable to put yourself out there, especially, um, especially for young women, but for everyone. I mean, the funniest thing I think my mom has ever said to me is she was like, you know, I don't know how you do it, I saw Ed Sheeran on the Today Show and he said Twitter was just so hateful. <laughs> and she's like, what does anyone even have to say to Ed Sheeran? And I was like, that's very insightful, mom. Like, if it's rough for Ed Sheeran, like, we're, this is such a toxic, it's such a toxic conversation right now. And the thing is, we do have a lot of democratizing power 
in the space of social media um, where we're getting past the gatekeepers and we're, we're seeing stories emerge that we would never have heard and that would, have ha would never have had such a sustained life. And especially the way that Me Too has continued to live on as a filter and a lens for processing the news is made possible by social media. But like, so it are, is the calculus of death and rape threats so that make it so that anybody who presents as a woman has to be fearful about talking about a preference for peanuts online. And I think that we, we all have to be part of, um, of, of insisting on a better conversation by participating in it better. And there's, such, there's a, still this problem. Um, the conversation online is inextricably connected to our experience of waking life and like news segments are being dictated by the conversation on Twitter. And we have to take it seriously and we have to take the way that we're behaving seriously and, and, and not think of it as just harassment and this scourge of hateful bigotry, radicalization and white supremacy as something that is just online. Um, and I think understand we have to have an active, positive, thoughtful role in the way we're conducting ourselves in what has become our public square. Well, this question is, how do you feel about cancel culture? <laughs> um, I think that that cancel culture has become a term that's sort of like a rhetorical band-aid. So, you know, I'd like have to ask you what you mean specifically. But I think there's a lot to it. I think that... Um, there's a panic happening right now where we're reinterrogating all of our norms and values, and it's really quite distressing. And, you know, we were talking about Al Franken in the green room, and um, Al Franken facing consequences for his actions, despite the fact that the demonic sweet potato has been credibly accused of rape. And that's very upsetting. That's very fucking upsetting. But what how do we uh, enforce shame as a society when there are people who are totally abdicating decency? And I think that that's really hmm. what's at the heart of what's challenging about cancel culture is that cancel culture only seems to reverberate for people who want to aspire to common decency. And so you have this perverse incentivization structure in which uh, working toward any level of... Uh, quality or progressivism or wanting a better future for us all and 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 not achieving a level of perfection makes it so that you're criticized for that gap between you and the purest level of progress and and then there's like people like doing crimes raping women behind dumpsters and like it doesn't apply to them and it's just this 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 weird this situation where you have a president who has himself done all of these endlessly atrocious things that he refuses to acknowledge and refuses to apologize for, and people are losing careers over old tweets. You're listening to a podcast of Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Support our podcast and find out about upcoming live events in San Francisco at inforumsf.org. I think what we need to do is, again, think critically. It's uh, it's not that that it's not that any given lesser infraction doesn't deserve a discussion. It's just the way we're having the discussion that's the problem. And I think Aziz Ansari is a really really interesting example of this. Um, I mean in terms of when he was accused of yes, because assault. I was very upset to read that um, 
I think also journalistically flawed, but that's a whole other panel, um, account of what occurred with Aziz. I think it exposed gray areas. I think it exposed the ways that young women are meant, are, are meant to compartmentalize ourselves and shove our, our, I don't know, sovereignty into a box just in case we piss someone off, just in case there's a danger, just in case we could be physically overpowered. It's easier to pretend you're drunk. It's easier to just give the hand job, to just go along with it. Like, I don't know what's this. It's like the, the, the weird, bizarre secret rules that define hookup culture um, are, were exposed by that in a very interesting way. And as a aspiring male feminist, um, I think Aziz, yeah, should have needed to be held to a particular standard for it. However, because he got caught in like the cresting wave of the Me Too movement, he was met with all fire and fury of um, to, to completely end his time and space like in the culture. It was completely not evenly attributed to, I don't know, Woody Allen, Roman Polanski, all these other, or Kelly at that point. All of these other known abusers are continuing to walk around and Aziz Ansari had a gray area problematic hookup and like is, was banished for a little while. So where do you think Me Too is going? I mean, we've had the situation where, you know, you had the appointment of Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court, and basically <clears throat> a lot of people attribute his ability to rise past a very credible Christine Blasey Ford was because he channeled the sort of anger and frustration of males who felt like this was going too far. I mean, that's... are you worried about its future or do you feel optimistic about where we'll get? With I, I want to be clear that we need court reform. Like, I want to be clear that we're coming for Brett Kavanaugh and then we're getting Clarence Thomas right after him. And and that we that the whole the whole I mean, it's just it's bigger than than Brett Kavanaugh and sexual misconduct. Brett Kavanaugh was, should not have been a viable nominee to the Supreme Court before we even met Christine Blasey Ford. Brett Kavanaugh should not have been a viable nominee to the Supreme Court based on the fact that we deserve a public mandate for the people that we are appointing to this office. And he never had anything resembling a majority opinion of support, even with bullshit op-eds like, I love Brett Kavanaugh, the carpool dad. What the fuck? Like, it's just so completely absurd I think that we were ever even having this conversation of well it's the it's the Republicans turn to, to 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 make a win for their team so this is just this is the nicest guy that they could offer and we're, yeah. we're just You're glad that he doesn't have horns you say that that's right yeah. that's right my dad my dad my dad did tell me he it, that it was the, it was Republicans, the Republicans turn, turn. Yes. but it's emblematic of 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 widespread thinking of of the fact that these things could just ever be shoved through against public will. I mean, okay, he's, he's, then we're being gaslit on his stance on reproductive rights, in which he's made explicit arguments against reproductive freedoms, rules on cases. What are we supposed to make projections about how he's supposed to rule? We're being told that he will, he will so graciously leave Roe v. Wade in place and there's there's obscure conversations about that being the law of the land, which is a meaningless statement because you'll be shaping the law of the land once you're on the bench, sir. But then, I don't know, eroding the rights beyond the abysmal state that they're already in, where we have women having to drive hundreds of miles to get hotel rooms and childcare to make decisions about their bodies, about their economic futures, as was already the complete and total lack of economic freedom that exists because of the way things already are, 
and that the way that they will continue to be eroded under his rule, the majority of Americans support reproductive rights. So just, I just don't even think it's a question. I mean, the, the, when we get to Christine Blasey Ford, I mean, my head's already exploded seven times. But in terms of, of, of the, the... Me Too movement? In terms of the Me Too movement... <laughs> I think that that radicalized a lot of women to be extremely fucking angry that this thing could still happen. And I think that it, again, further revealed how unacceptable um, the state of things are. So, I'm, I mean, I'm less interested in, in the male anger caught up in it than I am in us rejecting that as a force that we have to uh, respect. And I think that... Um, yeah, I guess, I guess just to tie it back into the BuzzFeed thing is, you know, it was rough and I went through a dark moment. It was, it was right before my, my book was going to come out. I felt like I was like having a pregnancy complication. It was pretty fucked up. But I guess, I guess at the end of the day, I would say I really don't think I have to worry um, about being canceled by the same society that allowed Brett Kavanaugh to be nominated to the Supreme Court. So you dedicated your book to Laura, and at first, as soon as I saw that, I wondered, who's Laura? And then at the very end of the acknowledgments, you say... My best friend. Why did you dedicate your book to Laura? <laughs> Laura. Oh my God, good cry. I wish she was here. <laughs> um, and if you've seen the movie Book Smart, it's basically a documentary about our friendship. Um, but like, I don't know. Laura is, Laura is the most important person in the world to me. And I went through um, a lot writing this book. And, you know, I was, I was married to a man before, so there's been some changes. I'm, I'm since come out. Mm -hmm. That was a big one. Yeah, um, that's a big one. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I, it's, we have something, a, a partnership that is so profoundly beautiful um, and beyond the level of love that I ever knew how to give myself. And um, she was so there for me during my darkest moments. And I never, ever had to question whether that would be the case. Um, and it feels like her heart is so deeply infused in this book. I know I couldn't have done it without her. So that's why it's dedicated to Laura. <laughs> yeah. You went through a divorce. You talked about getting over an eating disorder. You talk about finding God. And you talk about coming out all in the last three years. <laughs> Um, yeah. <laughs> One thing I wondered was how important is it to have a person like that in your life <laughs> to have to start a revolution? <laughs> yeah, that's everything. That's really, really everything. Um, I really didn't like myself very much before all this started. Um, and I didn't I didn't really know that. I mean, it's it's just such an odd thing. It's sort of like I had been told that you, you know, I had to be nicer to myself and that I had to love myself and that like I should look myself in the mirror and say I love you and give my hug myself a hug and say I love you. And I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, this is so corny. Like, that's all a joke. And um, I finally figured it out. It's really so simple. <laughs> and it took me, it took me being pushed into a pit of despair just that many times to just like have to have the willpower to love myself. Um, but it's truly like when I, when I couldn't find it in the early days of really building that muscle, I would tap into my love for Laura as a way to find my love for myself. Like it's just essential to survival. <laughs> um, and I, I really think that, and beyond Laura, there are a couple of people that have just so totally 
chosen me and I've so totally chosen them and just we show up for each other and hold space to to work through the things we need and to be able to evolve and to express ourselves fully and I think I've been able to really get to know myself through the love of a collection of chosen family and I'm I could not be grateful more grateful for that <laughs> this person it's another personal question how did you go from college to writing for Teen Vogue why do you think the gatekeeping actually found a quality in you versus the other 100 applications yeah well no it's crazy I mean it's like I I think I'm I'm like really crazy talented and it's still is a struggle all the time to like convince everyone that I'm serious. And um, I have had a target on my back also from standing out, I think in from the start that has been really difficult. And it's wild because it's like the only way you can break through the norm of the kind of person who gets to write and be taken seriously um, also requires you to kind of be hunted down by a scarcity mindset of the kinds of people who are deprived from having voices. Um, I think that, uh, I don't know, what the, the question was kind of like my career. Yeah, I think a little bit about what do you think they saw? What is it that jumped out at them that made you stand out as someone they wanted to bring on for your ideas? Oh, well, um, I don't know. I think, I think, uh, who is the they in this question is, is someone from Teen Vogue. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, that is Phil Picardi, who is really the one of the most talented people working in media today because he can really just see people's superpowers before they even know about it themselves and he um, messaged me on twitter and was like do you want to get a drink and i thought that he wanted to just be my friend um and i showed up and we i got really drunk like we had four margaritas and we we're just kind of screaming and being ridiculous like italians and then as he's signing the check he he was like, oh, so I have this weekend editor position. Are you interested? And the whole thing had been a job interview. And I was like seeing double. And <laughs> what did I just say? But I guess the right stuff. <laughs> um, and I think what he saw is that I, I, had, I was, had the confidence to express really strong opinions and to pursue them with all of the weight of my passion. And um, yeah, he, he believed in me way before anything took off. Um, and I worked for Teen Vogue for a long time before Gaslighting and I was the weekend editor. So that um, allowed me to have a pretty broad exposure to the work the site was doing because I was, you know, in Kylie Jenner's Instagram stories and then also having to work the the pulse shooting like we were doing a breaking news desk. And so I had to really be able to dexterously move beyond between all those subject areas and also to just take our readers seriously with all of those kinds of content. And um, I think that Phil, Phil, um, really paved the groundwork for that to be happening, for it to be uh, not even really a question of whether it made sense to publish Gaslighting. Like, much was made of that, but we didn't have anything to wonder about. Yeah. Well, speaking of strategy, I just want to read a couple of these questions because they kind of get at that. This question says, Trump has taken a lot of your advice using social media. Reality TV atmosphere is entertaining. Should Democrats use the same tactics to appear to the masses and to youth? I'd like to take that question a step further because we are in this process of an impeachment inquiry. Yeah. And I am curious what how you think Democrats are handling it. 
<laughs> well, I think that they are uh, having a sea change, fortunately, and being able to make proper condemnations. I think that the president using the office of the White House to engender political favor from a foreign adversary is clear-cut enough that we can finally see an end to the spinelessness. But, I mean, again, it's just the, the way that the Democratic Party, but, the, but also the way that mainstream media has been looking at Donald Trump is, is, is really been absurd from the very beginning. Um, there's such a um, performance of objectivity that is not the stuff of journalism. Journalism is must be guided by a verification method. It has to be objective in its methodology. It's not objective in its pageantry. And there's so there was such a, especially among journalists, this this well, oh, Mr. Mr. President, well, while I disagree with you on some issues, I must ask, or like, you know, and there's this idea that we're like pretending that this is in any way a legitimate administration. You're getting to this other question of what is the respectable media, and they have that in quotes here, <laughs> doing wrong with Trump's endless gaslighting and what should they be doing instead? You're actually yeah. kind of answering this question I at the same time. I think that we need to be... It's hard to talk about it in terms of the Democratic Party. I don't know if I have advice well, see, to offer the, through the, that lens. Pelosi's been like, we have to be prayerful and sober and move quickly, right? And then you've got Trump who's like, I'm just going to do it again with China right out in the open to sort of... Try to sanitize it somewhat or take that taint <laughs> off of it. Yeah. And I'm curious because it's your parents are Republicans who did vote for Trump in 2016, though. There's a question as to whether they do that again in 2020 that you've mentioned. But, you know, does that know, work? They will not. <laughs> they will not. <laughs> does that work? Is yeah. that working with Republicans? You I'm, know, I mean, it's it's we've gotten to such a, a, a crisis point with being unable to unpack the reality of the lies and of the disinformation. And the, the thing is that we have to, that there's a, the economy of bullshit is totally fucked, right? Like it takes so little effort to just put bullshit out there and so much work to clean up the mess. And it's often actually, I think a matter kind of of a lack of resources bordering on laziness when the broadest possible language can be used, right? So sometimes that means a lack of willingness to say lie or a lack of willingness to say gaslighting or a lack of willingness to break down the likely mechanics of doing the impeachable offense in broad daylight to make it seem fine. I mean, it's just, well, we can't, we can't assume his state of mind. There's no way to know what he's thinking. Yes, there fucking is. And I just, it's just there's a higher level of rigor that's required to make those arguments. Um, and because they are to some degree speculative. So you have to say, here are the facts. Here is his past behavior. Here is the context. Here is an administration that has been gaslighting us in all of these ways that we have many, many, many examples of. Here is the reality of how this man has used the presidency to profit from the very beginning. Jared Navaka, $29 million, all this information. And here's what he's probably doing now. It takes a lot, a lot of work. It's easier to be like, well, we don't know what the president, what does the president think? It's completely But you don't think they've late. gotten better? I think that it, it, it's, it's, it's gotten better, but it's, it's, it's a problem of 
the groupthink issue um, and what's what is safe and what is acceptable and, and 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 a fearfulness of how to sound the alarm because it's been a five alarm fire since he was elected. And so it's it's this complete distress about how to define a state of emergency um, that has like really defanged a lot of, uh, I don't know, the use of language. And I think um, I think we need to just be very precise um, about the dangers. And, and, and there's, there is no, I don't think, there is no being melodramatic. It's a, a big problem is the, is the, the undercurrent of, of gaslighting on the total level of hysteria. I mean, to go back to, to the Kavanaugh hearings, you know, it was Brian Stelter, I think, famously made a joke of, of oh, it's, not gonna, it's not like The Handmaid's Tale. I mean, it's like, it, it actually very specifically is like that. Like, I know you think that that's silly. I know that you think that women need a Hulu show to make sense of politics or whatever your reasoning is for this. But that's an authoritarian state where the means to production are being directly controlled by the government. So, like, we don't have outfits yet or, like, rape threesomes. But, like, some of the themes are very present and it's a reasonable thing to make sense of the onslaught on our rights to our bodies through this lens and it's just it's a matter of we're being we're being told that we're too upset but I mean I'm not really sure that they're that too upset is a possible thing that can exist in this current crisis what you're bringing up the hammies how reminds me of a point in your book where you talked about one of the clearest ways to help young people kind of sort through all the craziness of the politics and the structure and the hierarchy and who's good and who's bad mm -hmm. was to be able to layer harry potter yeah. on top of it and then they were able to assign certain roles and then it just became very clear to people yeah but this question intrigues me this person writes how do you end a revolution for example <laughs> the tea party revolution the twitter harassment revolution <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, by by fighting back against it with what what is happening that is wrong in in those revolutions. I mean, I guess it's it's a matter of living with your fullest sense of truth and inhabiting the values that you think we need to have in the world as best you can, you know, given the constraints of capitalism. So this question is, what is your advice for young women who want to be heard but don't have a Laura? Oh, don't have a Laura. Oh, gosh. Well, pair up, everybody. <laughs> everybody find your Laura here tonight. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. Um, I think I think decide to find to find your love and to find someone to support you and to 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 love yourself first and move from there. Um, I think, you know, you 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 when you raise your voice, you're going to get ugliness as just that's just the reality where I know when I would be asked kind of a, an even simpler version of that question of like how should young women decide to raise their voice when mm. I was almost sometimes worrying that I you know should I really be telling this 17 year old like yeah get a twitter account like start being spicy like mm. no actually it's gonna be quite dangerous and mm -hmm. so I think it's um a matter of realistically weighing the safety concerns because it does really take a toll. Um, and um, putting in the work to, to care for yourself and give yourself the love that you need and to recharge and um, taking the pain from it seriously. Like I, uh, when, I, when I first started, I really wanted to be um, 
untouchable. I really wanted to project a fierceness and um, and that that I didn't match my I don't know bedridden crash from it all. And I think that I've had to admit that it it takes a lot of my time to have to wonder if a threat of murder is serious or not and to have to take literal safety precautions for that. But even just a toll when it's something nasty that is deliberately tailored to hurt me. Um, and I, it's actually been really helpful for me to go one level deeper and be vulnerable, more vulnerable with myself and say like, this is actually very painful and I need to decide how to respond to it. And only then can I fully translate it into righteousness. So my advice is understand um, that it will hurt and understand that doing it is a righteous act. Earlier, we talked about the responsibility of the people who are currently in power, right, of, of politicians to engage young people. This question asked simply, should older members of Congress step down? <laughs> I think essentially they're saying, Retire Mitch room. McConnell. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to get into like a whole age question, but like, yes, to some degree. I mean, I, I just, I think we need to be making things really spicy for all of our incumbents. Good spicy means what exactly? It means uh, making these people feel as if they have to answer to voters. I don't know. <laughs> it's oh, wild. It's what like a crazy thought. You know, it's just there's this the the the, the reality is that moneyed interests are really outweighing the voice of the people um, in shaping our policy. And I and so a really good way to look at how we've been trained to accept the, that as just the way things are is Mitch McConnell. And I just, I really do want to talk about Mitch McConnell because the damage that Mitch McConnell has done to this country is really hard to understate. I mean, he has singularly blocked policy initiatives on gun reform, the climate crisis, and healthcare, all without offering any reasonable alternative. And we're supposed to believe that he's just an he's just a statesman. He's just he thinks like what could he be thinking? He has to he has to win scores for his team, the Republican Party, and completely ignore the will of the people on 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 on, on the gun reform crisis alone. I mean, we can't even we can't even make moves on bump stocks because of this man. He's just completely obstructed the functioning of democracy. And I think it's actually very it's it is very serious uh, issue that we have been told. Well, well, that's the way things work in Washington, and and we just we've just reached this state where when people get power, they just wield it and for themselves and totally selfishly, and we just have to accept that. It's it's absolutely fucking insane and um to then also see the way that he he suddenly suddenly is quite an enabler um of getting stuff done when he's reshaping the federal judiciary adding over a hundred judges to the bench suddenly he's 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 not so worried about the, the respect for parliamentary procedures and he he's just acting like a anti-choice pez dispenser it's just I, I, I think that he is... It will have a long-term effect because of his role with the judiciary. Absolutely. It sounds like, is he sort of the key to... But I think the key thing about this is not just that Mitch McConnell is, is a 
fucking evil bastard, but that is part of it. It's that we've been told that, that he's just operating based on the rules of this game that two teams are trying to win. And it's just, it's so totally egregious that there is public will on these major issues, on a need for reasonable climate solutions, on a need for gun reform and health care. I have a lot of other things I care about, but those, those ones, we've got the American people in majority saying, please do something. And one little fucking turtle saying no. Is he the focal point? I mean, you're talking about how to start a revolution, right? Is he the key for you? Is he your focal point right now when you think about where you want to focus your energies politically? I have to be a lot of make... focal points. I have written an obituary for Mitch McConnell. I'm very excited about it. And I I <laughs> took out a lot of this rage. Um, <laughs> I just think the, fo the, the focal point should be the system that allows us, that has created the situation that we could ever accept a lack of solutions for our political problems as just the way things are. And I think Mitch McConnell is a major villain in upholding that system, but that it is deeply entrenched and that it looks like two parties uh, differentiating themselves based on artificial competition, making no effort to reach out to and appeal to their constituents as a public at large and a media that frames our politics in terms of wins and losses between these two teams um, and political and media gatekeepers who enforce the bizarre secret rules of who has expertise and who gets to have an opinions. My focal point is giving every person in the American public political agency. My focal point is giving people the information that they need to see clearly that we must all have self-determination and be able to critically think for ourselves and that our experiences as political subjects are valid and that when they are, our political opinions are valid and that they must be regularly communicated and that we do not have to wait for permission um, from the cabal of mostly wealthy white men who has an oligarchic hold on the country right now. Well, I feel like that brings us to the in-forum tradition <laughs> that you have heard a little bit about where we ask guests um, the same question. And the question is, what is your 60 second idea to change the world? Okay, so hopefully there's not like a real clock, but no, it you can is. take longer. 60 <laughs> Figurative sixty seconds. <laughs> Love that you're all here for like ten hours. I, mean, <laughs> I work in radio, so usually it's not. It's literal for me whenever they okay. give me a countdown. But in your case, I will try. You're that. okay. Okay. <laughs> so my idea is that we all have to be doing the damn thing all the time. My idea is that we have to be thinking about citizenship as an essential, constant daily action. Uh, and so I end the book with this insistence that voting is just the most basic transactional mode of citizenship. And I mean, we're not even doing that enough. So I, I get that I'm being very optimistic, but vote, register vote, make sure all of your friends are registered in voting in rinse and repeat, essential, most basic level. Then what are you doing all of the time to be operating with political agency, to be questioning how you're moving through the world and what the rules are that determine how we all live together. So step one is stay informed, get yourself informed. You don't have to know everything. I mean, I don't even know everything and it's my job. So pick 
the issue that matters to you and get your foundation of information and understand that the only thing you need to express a political opinion, the only thing you need to be qualified is to be informed. Once you have that foundation of information, trust your gut that you can make that political opinion. Say, what do I really think about this? Not what have I been told to think about this? Not what does everybody else think about this? What do I, fully functioning frontal cortex, think about this? And then take action to, to put your passionate political opinions into action. So what are the things you care about the most? What are the ways the world could be improved? What are the ways that we should be do, doing things differently? Pick it and decide how you can make it reality by raising your voice. And what raising your voice looks like has to be the activity that works best for you, that resonates best with your time and energy. I, I really don't want to tell you what to do, but I can give you some options. Maybe you're regularly contacting elected officials. Maybe you're making donations if you have the means. Maybe you're joining protests, organizing your own, starting nonprofit, running for office. The list goes on. There's bigger ticket items. There's smaller things that you can just do every day, all the time, on a weekly basis, maybe. I think the best way to think of it is kind of like going to the gym, right? Like, you got to pick, like, if I, you decided you wanted to get really fit for summer, you'd be like, what kind of body am I trying to have? Like, what kind of workout am I doing? What's my schedule like? You, you'd miss the gym, so you wouldn't go sometimes, and, and it would suck sometimes, but you, you would have to commit to, to regularly go into the gym to expect to reasonably build your muscles. And I think we all need to have daily rituals of democracy and that it's not just our right, it, it is our urgent, incumbent need, um, and we need, I think, to make it a, a constant sense of individual purpose, to build it socially so that it creates community, and um, to make it really fucking lame to be tapped out of politics, to make it totally socially unacceptable and weird and uncool um, and antisocial, to not know what's going on politically. So, you know, shame your friends who don't know about, no, just kidding, but <laughs> just do the damn thing all the time. Um, incentivize it with your friends and, and, and work to building a rich culture of democracy in which we are all constantly um, acting with political agency, I think that that is going to be a ton of work and that any individual action does feel infinitesimal and does feel like recycling the plastic bottle, but it's the same sort of thing, right? Like, for all recycling, it will make a difference. For all doing this thing, for all taking these individual actions, it will build to collective power. Um, so please, you know, brush your teeth and do democracy. <laughs> <laughs> Lauren Duca, thank you so much thank for you. talking with us. Her book is How to Start a Revolution, Young People and the Future of America. And you can join her in the lounge for a book signing of How to Start a Revolution. So my name is Mina Kim. Thank you and good night. Thank you. <laughs>